Four months after the Republican National Convention, Brandon Darby posted a letter on Indie Media, a website used by activists worldwide from Chiapas to London to Seattle. To all concerned, he wrote, There are currently allegations in the media that I have worked undercover for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The allegations seemed ludicrous. Everybody knew Brandon Darby hated cops. He talked openly about overthrowing the U.S. government. One of his friends, a sort of living legend among anarchists, had posted his own earlier letter on Indie Media, saying the idea of Brandon working for the FBI was absurd. It would be the biggest lie of my life since I found out the truth about Santa Claus as a child. You can see where this is going. The simple truth is that I have chosen to work with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Many of you went against my wishes and spoke publicly in defense of me. I really did mean it when I said I didn't want to discuss it and that I didn't want folks addressing the allegations. I'm looking forward to open dialogue and debate regarding the motivations and experiences I've had and the ethical questions they pose. What followed wasn't debate and dialogue, but vitriol. People were shocked. Brandon Darby was one of the best-known radical activists in the South. In Austin, Texas, where he lives, posters with Brandon's face went up on bulletin boards at coffee shops and stores around town. The poster said, Beware, Brandon Darby, FBI informant rat loose in Austin. Brandon still has some loyalists in the activist community, but for the most part, he's hated. I've interviewed probably 20 people who know or worked with Brandon, and their feelings about him now are pretty extreme. Megalomaniac. Manipulative. Brandon Darby is very charming. Very brash. He's very macho. Brandon is known for being kind of macho. Very confrontational and violent at times. Brandon never advocated violence. He never once would suggest to do harm to anybody. Brandon is crazy. He's a wingnut. Very loving, you know what I mean? Like, like a brother, like a best friend. He thinks he's on a larger mission. I mean, I do think he has that hero complex. He loves publicity, and he loves being interviewed, and he loves to be the center of attention. I think he's a pathological liar. You know, whatever Brandon said, he was real about it. He was always real. Whether you liked it or not, he was real. How do you gel that into one picture? How do you, um, you know, I, I don't know. I first met Brandon two weeks after Hurricane Katrina. I did a story about him for our local radio station in Austin. And Brandon had this crazy, true story to tell. He bought a boat and drove from Austin to New Orleans after the storm to find his friend, a former Black Panther named Robert King Wilkerson, who lived in a flooded neighborhood. Brandon couldn't get the boat into the city, so he decided to wade in. At the time, he told the story like that was the only reasonable thing to do. I came under an overpass, and there were law enforcement officers on the overpass, and they stopped me, and they told me to wait there, that I didn't have a reason to be there, a right to be there, and asked me who I was, and I told them I was going to get my friend. And they said, you can't do that. And I said, well, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but you're on an overpass, and I'm down here. And so I, I really don't see how you're going to stop me from getting my friend. So Brandon literally swam into the fetid water. And when he couldn't reach his friend's house on his own, he somehow, while stranded on a fence pole, badgered the Coast Guard into rescuing Wilkerson. This story became famous among activists in New Orleans, and it sums up Brandon pretty well. A mixture of heroism, recklessness, and arrogance. Brandon Darby looks a little like an action hero. 
six foot plus, stubble, he's got some muscle. Good looking in a rugged movie star sort of way, down to the cleft chin. And he didn't become a political activist after taking a Marxist theory class. He didn't go to college. He was the smart guy from a crappy Gulf Coast refinery town who spent a lot of his teenage years running away from home. He lived on the streets of Houston and was in and out of group homes and treatment centers. By the time he hit 20, with an eighth grade education and a GED, he learned what he took as the central lesson of his life. People in power lie and take advantage of people weaker than themselves. And when he moved to Austin, he discovered radical politics. He showed up at the anarchist bookstore, read up, and started channeling his anger towards the U.S. government. And it all came to a head after Hurricane Katrina. I believed for years that the government was out of control and, and that it didn't have any concern for the average person. And then Katrina happened, and it, it, it reinforced it 500%. I was, I, was, I was very dedicated and sure that it would be a, a huge error on my part to spend any time trying to work with or change our government and that they just were so rotten to the core I needed to do something about it and that maybe I needed to become a revolutionary who believed in overthrowing the state. So we moved to New Orleans, and post-Katrina New Orleans was the perfect place for someone who believed, sincerely and literally, in the overthrow of the U.S. government. A wasteland with no functioning central authority is a paradise for anarchists. It was a chance to prove what Brandon and others already believed. Government sucks. We can create a better world without it. So he and three other more experienced activists started up a relief organization with 50 bucks. They named it Common Ground. In the vast plain of devastation that is the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans, there's a little blue house. It shines in the sun like a wildflower amid the wreckage. And it was here, at the little blue house on Deslin Street, that we found something rare in New Orleans, a real success story an American success story. It's called Common Ground. That's from Nightline. Common Ground might have been heralded as an American success story and a wildflower by the time the mainstream media found them a year later. But at the beginning, it was a bunch of outraged radicals, anarchists, promising to deliver relief by any means necessary. They were the only relief group here in the Upper Ninth Ward. Ken Gaspard grew up in the Ninth Ward. Red Cross was handing out food in uptown New Orleans and where, where no damage was happening. You can find Red Cross down here in New York. To this day, I will not give Red Cross a dollar of my money for that reason. Within weeks after Katrina, Common Ground, with Brandon leading the Ninth Ward effort, became a force, providing meals, health care, and help with gutting houses, all for free. They didn't have permits or anything. They just did it. And police did not like it. Common Ground was being run out of the house of a former Black Panther named Malik Rahim, and Brandon says it quickly became a target. The police would show up every night at Common Ground at Malik's house, and, um, and they would um, find some means of intimidating the hell out of us. Specifically, what would they uh, what say? Arrest everybody for things. Like, I almost got arrested because I didn't have proof that my car was registered, and I was, I was like, well, look at my sticker. I'm like, yeah, but do you have a receipt for it? And I was like, I don't think I need a receipt. They're like, Mr. Darby, if you don't have a receipt, I'm going to arrest you. And it's like, well, okay. You know, like, I guess you're going to arrest me because I don't, this, you know, like, really find infractions to arrest us with. We did have a hard early going. Major John Bryson, with the New Orleans Police Department, was in command of the Ninth Ward. 
One of the first people that I ran into on the streets uh, was Brandon Darby. Um, I invited uh, Darby and his staff over to my, the 5th District Police Station where we met uh, in a trailer of all things. That's where we were actually working out of, temporary trailers. And uh, it was a very interesting first meeting. Uh, Brandon kept interrupting um, uh, what I was telling him, what was expected of them, and he lays my expectations down. Uh, police, he kept saying that, you don't understand, I'm an activist. I said, yes, Mr. Darby, I know you're an activist, and I'm just being just as polite as I could be, but Brandon was at my throat. He kept saying that, you don't understand, we're going to be videotaping you, going to be audiotaping you. I mean, he was very uh, uh, aggressive meeting, I would say, on his part. But over the coming days and weeks and months uh, of watching them do what they did, bringing in, my God, doctors and, and feeding people, it was just a work of art. And I'm not saying this is what they said, I'm telling you what I saw. And uh, we were scratching our heads trying to figure out, well, where's the government? At the same time Bryson was changing his mind about common ground, Brandon began changing his mind about Bryson. It started when he got a call from Bryson. He said, hey Brandon, I was driving around my district thinking of how much I dislike you and what you stand for. And I was like, I was just thinking about how much I dislike you too. And he was like, but I came across all these youngsters who said that, that you had given a medicine to, to deliver to elderly residents. A lot of them I know. And I said, that's what we do. And he goes, well, I'm having a hard time disliking you when you're doing stuff like that. And I said, well, I'm having a hard time disliking you when you're talking to me like this, you know? And that was the start of an interesting friendship. Brandon, to his surprise, started thinking that maybe he and some of the police in New Orleans were actually on the same side, trying to do the same thing, fix a crippled city. Meanwhile, Brandon found himself in an organization with hundreds of volunteers and no clear hierarchy. Others at Common Ground wanted to run the organization by consensus, where everyone gets a say, and no one walks around telling other people what to do. But Brandon came to believe that the volunteers did need someone telling them what to do, and what not to do. Folks would take over the kitchen and decide because they were the kitchen now, and they wouldn't tell you this before they took over the kitchen responsibilities, but then once they took over the kitchen responsibilities, it became a vegan kitchen. And it's like, well, A, we're relying on handouts here. Like, we don't have money to buy food ourselves, you know, to feed people. And B, the people we're serving don't want vegan food. They might not like ginger noodles every day. And like, well, our kitchen has decided, like, we as the kitchen crew have decided um, through our process that we're not going to serve oppression. And it's like, well, then I've decided that you're not going to work in the kitchen. A lot of people were mad because, well, I don't consent on working in a church because churches are patriarchal and churches are, and I say, well, then don't work in a church, but we're working in a church, you know. Thankfully, there's like 20 other areas of the city that are open for leadership. Why don't you go talk to Malik and ask Malik if you can take that area and run that area how you see fit. Brandon had rebelled against authority his entire life. He didn't trust authority figures. Now he was the authority figure. And this was one of many ways that Brandon was finding himself out of sync with the anarchists at Common Ground. Brandon yelled at people. He ate meat. 
He slept with a lot of women, plenty of them common ground volunteers. He owned guns. A lot of people thought he was a bully, including the other people who created common ground, Scott Crow, Malik Rahim, and Lisa Fithian. He didn't ask a lot of times. He just assumed that nobody knew what they were doing and he was going to do it, even though he had never organized anything. Never organized, never organized anything. Zero. You know, Common Ground wouldn't be, I know we wouldn't be around now if Brandon would still be here, you know, because of the chaos that he started and he perpetuated. It was all about him. If Brandon's all about the community, he's all about the community if he gets to be the savior. A documentary on YouTube shows Brandon at his desk when he was in charge of Common Ground. He sits in front of a boarded-up window with a sign on it that says, Stop Police Corruption. Call Brandon Darby. In the video, he launches into one of his signature political rants that manages to connect Katrina to just about any other historical injustice he can think of. You have the, the same people that decided to, you know, inject black men with syphilis in Tuskegee and who decided to drop an atomic bomb and cause cancer in millions and millions of people. When you have these people deciding when it is or is not appropriate to deliver humanitarian aid. But the more Brandon talked to the residents of New Orleans, the people he was trying to help, and trying to sell them on his politics, the less he could avoid yet another unsettling conclusion. As much as I might want revolution, like, the residents don't. For instance, Brandon had a plan that he was excited about. When the president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez made a grandstanding offer to help New Orleans after Katrina. Brandon wanted to take him up on it. Initially, a lot of residents were cool. They're like, I don't care who helps us. But after a while, a lot of them weren't. And it was like, yeah, but we could get money and they could build trailers for you, like Chavez trailers. If if the FEMA's not going to give you trailers like they're supposed to by law, we'll get Chavez trailers. And then the U.S. government will look at that and go, gee, this is embarrassing. We better build FEMA trailers for them, you know? And they were like, nah, bro, I love my country. It ain't about that for me, you know? My kid's in the military, man. You know, I support my kid in the military. I just want my house, and I want my kids to come back, and I want my grandma's house next door to get fixed. That's all I want. I don't, I don't, I don't want the Ayatollah buying me any houses. That's okay. I'd rather be homeless. See, these people in the Ninth Ward ain't activists, bro. Ain't gonna be activists. Ken Gaspard again, the Ninth Ward resident. You know, at one point they wanted me to come with them to protest the closing, uh, tearing down of a, you know, one of the low-income projects. I asked them, "Are you crazy?" Because you know what, they'll look at you and go like, "Hmm, he ain't from here." But me, I'll be the first one to call off the jail. But in spite of residents' objections, Brandon went to Venezuela. He and a group of activists flew to Caracas. And Brandon met with an official in the Chavez government to ask for money for common ground. And that's when things got weird. So we're in his office, and I was just like, in heaven. I was like, wow, I'm in this revolutionary country, and, you know, for the people of the United States who are oppressed. And then over a period of time, uh, the conversation turned into, would I go with them to Colombia to meet with FARC? The FARC is a communist guerrilla group that's been at war with the Colombian government for more than 40 years and sometimes kidnaps people. Brandon started to get panicky. What if these guys are working with the FARC and want to kidnap an American with resources? Or what if, you know, I didn't know what the heck was going on. But these guys began to pressure me, you know, and over a number of days and over about a week, they were really laying it on me to go with them to Colombia. What was they telling you that, why did they want you to? They said they wanted a 
they wanted to help me start a guerrilla movement in the swamps of, of Louisiana, you know? <laughs> and I was like, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to do that. Thank you, you know? And, and they were like, aren't what, you a revolutionary? Aren't you a revolutionary? Then what do you care about the danger? Come with us. Come with, you should meet these people. And I was like, yeah, yeah not going to do it, you know? Brandon, it turned out, was not a revolutionary. When push came to shove, he didn't want the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. When Brandon returned from Venezuela, he went back to Common Ground, but it didn't end well. The group was in chaos and having money troubles. Brandon took over officially as director of the whole operation, and his blunt methods and contempt for consensus led to a mutiny. Around 10 coordinators at Common Ground resigned in protest. Brandon managed to stay in charge and fix some things in the organization. But within six months, he left Common Ground and never went back. Politics, uh, it's politics, you know. We were no more morally correct than, than the political system of the U.S. government. That was a big realization for me that I was on a wrong track. I didn't see Brandon for three and a half years after Katrina, and so it was strange, to say the least, to meet the former revolutionary in his hotel room in Minneapolis, where he showed me what he was planning to wear to testify against one of the activists he'd informed on for the FBI. This is my suit. And, uh, I'm a little worried I didn't bring my slacks over. The FBI did not recruit Brandon. He wasn't a criminal they'd convinced to snitch in exchange for a lower sentence. He went to them, but not right away. Coming up, how a revolutionary becomes a spy. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme and bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Turncoats, and we return to Michael May's story about political activist Brandon Darby. When Brandon left Common Ground and went back to Austin in the beginning of 2007, he turned towards something quite exotic to him ordinary life. He bought a house. His daughter was born. He tended his garden. Just tried to fit back into, I guess, normalcy, you know, not um, not being in New Orleans, not being in the situation I was in in New Orleans. But I think at the time, I was, I was having a very difficult time making sense of, making sense of my views, I guess. Brandon also missed the intensity of common ground, and the moral certainty. He had an idea for an organization called Critical Response, where he would lead medics into war zones to help civilians caught in the crossfire. They'd go to Lebanon or maybe Darfur. But instead, one of the acquaintances he made while planning Critical Response, an older man who ran a Palestinian charity, came to him with a very different plan. An idea to put explosives on motorcycles so that they could go through the barricades that were meant for vehicles. Where? In Israel. And I didn't agree with it. And the person went further to ask me to help them funnel money to Hezbollah and Hamas. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this, man. Brandon was going to let it go. But the man started asking other people to do it. People Brandon knew. So he went to the one cop he trusted, Major Bryson of the New Orleans Police Department, his one-time adversary, now ally. It was Bryson who suggested that Brandon tell the FBI. 
So how do you do that? You just walk into the FBI no, office? You don't. You could just walk in if you wanted to, I suppose. I mean, I, they'd probably talk with you. But well, you, there, a meeting was set up. He gave me a phone number. I called the number. And um, then that man brought another agent with him. And we met and had a cup of coffee and talked, you know. And I left. And I drove back to Austin. And... Um, it was just a strange experience, and I was, I was really bothered by the fact that I had met with the FBI, you know. I felt like I had done something that I would never be able to tell anybody about. And then ultimately it began to bother me. I was like, well, wait a minute. I just did something that probably prevented people from getting blown up, you know. Why, why is... Who are the people I associate with that if I said, hey, I, I tried to stop violence, like they would be upset with me? And the more Brandon thought about it, the more he remembered how many times he'd come close to violent political action himself. Over the years, he'd been asked by friends to get together and rob an armored car for the revolution. He'd been invited to train to do eco-terrorism. He'd had long, serious talks about committing arson to fight gentrification. He never did any of that. But now, maybe because he'd gotten older and less angry, or because of his experiences at Common Ground and in Venezuela, he decided he needed to take a stand against it. He called the FBI back and volunteered to become an informant. And in my interviews with him, I asked him over and over, why go that far? I could see why he'd gone to the FBI in the first place, but to become an informant, to go undercover, not many people would choose that option especially people who just bought a house and had a kid. I ran one theory by him, and he didn't react well. My desire is to be a hero. Like, that's, that's a really, I feel, a kind of a negative way to portray that. I don't think that's a, a, a fair analysis, you know. Why is that negative? I don't negative? think I want to be a hero any more than, than someone who's a firefighter. Are they firefighters because they want to be a hero? Yes. I don't think so. How would you call it then? I mean, you put it like... I think some people feel a natural... A natural desire to stick up for others. Why is this up to you? Because it's in my lap. It's in my lap. You know, that's the deal. Is is some people? But Katrina wasn't in your lap. Well, it kind of was in my lap, though. That's the thing. Is it was in my lap because I had access to buy a boat, and I knew that I had just the right mentality that I was going to go and get my friend. You know, and I knew that nobody was going to tell me I wasn't, and so I did it. And that's what I did. And that's kind of been how I've always done things. That's what my brain naturally does, you know? Some people are really good with numbers in their accounts. My brain thinks of ways to fix things I think are wrong. It was during this conversation, roughly our 17th, that I finally understood. Brandon kept using this analogy. He'd say, if you walked by an alley and saw someone getting beat up, wouldn't you try and stop it? And I thought, well, yeah, but how often does that happen? Brandon is always walking by that alley. There's some words I get sensitive about, like hero complex. I, I kind of think all of us as activists have some degree of that. You know, I definitely know I do, you know. But I think more than that, the, the thing that doesn't feel good is when you could have saved someone and you don't. You know, that sucks. When you can fix something and you don't. You know, when you can hold people accountable and you don't.
So Brandon's work as an undercover informant for the FBI began. Brandon met David McKay and Brad Crowder, the two guys who were convicted of making Molotov cocktails, at a meeting in Austin at the Monkey Wrench bookstore in February of 2008. A group called the RNC Welcoming Committee was recruiting protesters for the Republican National Convention in St. Paul. The goal was to shut down the event with swarms of activists, including some using black bloc anarchist tactics. Protesters you've probably seen with black bandanas covering their faces, making human chains, pushing dumpsters into the street, breaking glass. The FBI sent Brandon to the RNC Welcoming Committee meeting to check it out. Brandon thought spying on them was a waste of time, but he says when he got there, the group used a phrase that alarmed him. They talked about protests involving a diversity of tactics. It's a common term used in radical leftist circles um, in, in relation to arson. And Brandon says from that moment, it seemed possible to him that something violent might happen at the convention. Not likely, but possible. I think ultimately, there's a lot of bark and no bite with a lot of people. You know, I think you have a lot of people who are very reasonable and rational, as much as I might not agree with the way they do things sometimes, like pretty reasonable people. But the thing is, is there are always someone who, someone who will do it. You know, when the space is created for him to do so and the support network is set up for him to do so. I felt like there would probably be some who would do something crazy, even though the majority wouldn't. For the next six months, Brandon spied on guys who were essentially younger versions of himself, two Texas activists in their early 20s who didn't have college degrees and turned to leftist politics to help them make sense of the world. Brandon identified with them, especially Brad. I related to him a lot. And I related to David McKay somewhat, too. I thought he was probably a pretty decent guy who um, was getting caught up in some stuff that I would have hoped he wouldn't have got caught up in. My initial reaction to he and to Brad was like, I should try to find a way to just get these guys and tell them the people they're associating with are, are being idiots, you know? But again, that's not the role I was playing. The FBI told Brandon that the role he was playing was to be accepted by the group, but not to be the leader. But Brandon had an odd way of trying to pull that off. He became a sort of caricature of his former hardcore activist self. In Brandon's own FBI reports entered in David McKay's trial, he talked about berating David and Brad as tofu eaters who needed to bulk up, saying he was going to the RNC to shut the f down, and bragging that any group I go with will be successful. Brad Crowder wouldn't agree to an interview, but David McKay remembers the meetings with Brandon. You know, we had a lot of discussions about how we need to be, how he was criticizing us about our physical, you know, where we were physically. Um, he gave Brad a lot of, uh, you know, flack about that because Brad's a really skinny individual. He's very, uh, not very athletic and stuff like that. And he always, like, put him in a chokehold out of nowhere one time just to test what Brad would do and like things like that like comments about how Brad specifically and me too uh, kind of like weaklings why did you put up with this well we really we really didn't want to we really didn't and we really didn't feel very comfortable about Brandon for a long time but it always came into play that we had never done anything like this, ever. Uh, we didn't want to just be these guys that just showed up without any, like, credentials or any kind of credit. And, like, that's what, everything that Brandon was, you know? He was 
he was the activist guy from Austin. And like with him, we felt like we were legitimate. Being a revolutionary instead of an activist was kind of what he made the situation feel like. That we weren't just going here to protest, but we were here, we were coming here to, you know, fight for our beliefs. Not just to voice our opinion, but to actually fight. Brandon says that if he was busting their chops, it was because he was trying to discourage them without stepping out of character. In other words, the very things that David says egged him on are the things Brandon says were supposed to stop him. When they talked about their willingness to go to prison, then what I did was begin to tease them about the fact that they weren't prepared to go to prison and probably weren't prepared to make those kind of decisions for themselves. Saying like, you guys are, you have no muscle mass, you would get killed in prison. So yes, I did say things to try to discourage them from doing stuff. And, and I felt the pull between my role as a person working with law enforcement and my, my role as a, just an older person who made, had some realizations in my life and wanted to discourage people was a huge dilemma for me the entire time. And it was something that I, I struggled with the entire time. In August 2008, on the eve of the Republican National Convention, Brandon traveled to Minneapolis with David, Brad, and a few others in a van dragging a trailer full of homemade shields and other protest equipment. Brandon tipped off the FBI, and as soon as the group parked the U-Haul, the cops raided it and took the shields and everyone else's stuff. David and Brad were angry about the shields, and they didn't want to show up at the protest empty-handed. So David McKay says they made eight Molotov cocktails in about 15 minutes with supplies they bought from a Minneapolis Walmart. Uh, it was just gasoline in a bottle with a little bit of oil, and then he duct taped the top, and that's it. Where did you do it? In the bathroom. Uh, in the tub. Yeah, no, it was incredibly easy. The fumes were really strong, so right after we went outside, and by that time it was nighttime, and we kind of just set up on the roof, and um, he's going to get mad at me that I'm going to tell you this, but, uh, you know, we talked about, before we talked to anybody, and we were like, I said to him, I hope this isn't one of those when keeping it real goes wrong scenarios, and we kind of laughed, and no, we were very lighthearted about the whole situation. When word got out to the rest of the activists about the Molotovs, they weren't so lighthearted. In fact, they were angry. When we found out like how the group felt about the situation, you know, that impacted us a lot because, you know, we're like, well, we're going to bring something to the group of people, you know, that we'll be able to use and implement and, you know, we'll be doing another good thing. We'll be helping them out. And when we heard from them, you know, what you're doing is ridiculous, stupid, and dangerous. You know, that made us feel like, well, well, we need to we need to rethink this. What follows is a depressing series of events, no matter whom you believe. David and Brad never used the Molotov cocktails. They left them stuffed in bags in a basement while they went out to protest. But Brandon, on behalf of the FBI, asked David what he planned to do with the Molotov cocktails. David now says he didn't want to lose face with Brandon, so he made up a plan. 
He suggested that he and Brandon use the Maltas that night on a parking lot filled with cop cars next to a checkpoint. If David wasn't serious about doing it, as he testified, he made a terrible mistake by telling an FBI informer that's what he was planning. I didn't want him to think that I was scared, scared of what was going to happen or, or afraid of him. Brandon, for his part, says he did everything he could to stop David. But again, the way he did it seems as much like goading as discouragement. I told him a lot of times, a number of times, that it, I didn't think it was a good idea. If he wanted to back out, I wouldn't tell anybody. Nobody would know. I did say I'm a revolutionary, and if you want to do this, I'll do it with you. But as a revolutionary, I think people should probably wait till they're 30 before they make decisions that could put them in prison for two decades. That's what I said to him. I said it over and over again. He's not old enough to make that decision. And, and I'm glad I didn't make decisions like that in my 20s. I think people should wait till they're 30. He got very adamant and angry that he was going to do it, whether I helped him or not. And I was like, fine. And at a point, I let it go. David and Brandon agreed to meet at 2 a.m. But when the time rolled around, David blew it off. And then he stopped responding to Brandon's calls. At 4.30 a.m., David was awoken by a police officer pointing a rifle at him. He was asleep next to a girl he'd met in St. Paul. It was around an hour before he was going to the airport to fly back to Austin. Since then, both Brad and David have pled guilty to the possession of unregistered firearms, which is what the law calls Molotov cocktails. Oh, here's a good one. You're a whore. A few months later, Brandon is sitting at his desk reading emails. Brandon was curious how much money the FBI compensated you for being a sewer rat. Why didn't you advise and guide your friends towards nonviolence? Why not? Because you must be a brainless, heartless FBI whore. Congratulations on your brilliant career of whoring your soul. I'm kind of envious. Does it pay well to be a whore? It didn't pay well, actually. Brandon got a total of $12,750 from the FBI, plus $3,028 in expenses. As a result of his informing, he's been skewered in the alternative press and shunned by many friends. He's gotten death threats. You, you feel 100% certain that no, that law enforcement was the right way to go with this? No, I don't feel 100% certain of anything. It depends when you ask me. You know, it depends when you ask. Sometimes I feel bad enough for them that I don't go to sleep. They made their choices, you know. I made my choices, and, and we both have things to live with. Here's what Brandon has to live with as I see it. In one of the first emails he wrote to the FBI after meeting Brad and David, he worried that they might end up as, quote, some strange form of collateral damage. I don't think this means Brandon somehow encouraged Brad and David to make the Molotov cocktails, as David's lawyer argued, and as activists all over the country now believe. But I do think that if Brad and David had met Brandon as he actually was, not in character, not playing a role for the FBI, but as an older activist and a natural leader who was profoundly regretful over the extremism of his past views, he would have stopped them from making Molotov cocktails, and Brad and David wouldn't be facing years in prison. Michael May in Austin, Texas. Brad Crowder was sentenced to two years in prison for making and possessing Molotov cocktails at the Republican National Convention. David McKay was just sentenced this week four years 